This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased and honored to have the Honorable Robert Bacharach, Judge for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. Welcome, Judge Bacharach. Well, thank you, David. I'm so delighted to be here. It is great to have you. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Judge Bacharach's book uh, on legal writing. Uh, but first, uh, I just want to give a little bit of a background. You are a U.S. Magistrate Judge for the Western District of Oklahoma for 14 years. Uh, you were nominated by President Obama and then uh, confirmed 93 to 0 to be uh, on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit in, in 2013. Uh, tell us a little bit about that process of going from being a magistrate judge to going to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. Well, it was somewhat of a surreal transition. I loved being a magistrate judge. I consider that um, one of the most uh, uh, extraordinary professional experiences that I've had. And I was so honored to be a magistrate judge. I view the, the work of magistrate judges uh, as very, very important. And uh, the transition was somewhat uh, odd to me because I uh, practiced in, Oklahoma, in a relatively small legal community in Oklahoma City. We have a, a relatively small federal bench, and my bosses were the district judges. Those were the people that appointed me, and all of a sudden, uh, in uh, the flick of a switch, I was reviewing those very judges who were responsible for giving me my first judicial appointment, and so it was somewhat of an odd uh, experience. Right. And, and so now you're in a 10th circuit, uh, uh, court of appeals, which covers Oklahoma, Kansas, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah. Uh, what's it like covering such a, a wide, uh, geographic swath of the country? It's, uh, I think it's terrific in one respect in challenging in one respect. The terrific aspect is because of the geographic uh, variations in our circuit, we really do draw on a lot of people that have completely different experiences. And so they have completely different worldviews, uh, personalities, um, their cultures are quite different. And I think that that en enhances uh, the quality, the diversity of our, of our court the challenging part was, frankly, getting to know your colleagues. I uh, I was jealous of uh, some judges, uh, some courts rather, for example, in the D.C. Circuit where, or the D.C. District Court, or my own experiences in being a magistrate judge where you can just go down the hall and visit with a colleague about uh, something that is challenging, uh, an issue that is challenging, maybe a situation that is challenging. And it's really difficult to do that when all of your colleagues are hundreds or even a thousand miles away. And so getting to know your colleagues, I think, was the primary challenge uh, by virtue of having such a geographically spread out court. And, and how were you able to do that? I mean, you're obviously, you're, your home is based in Oklahoma. The, the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals is, is in Denver. Uh, how were you able to make that connection with your, with your colleagues? Through effort. Um, you know, part of that comes with the passage of time. I've 
probably consider myself a pretty shy individual, but I but I've made an effort and continue to make an effort after eight and a half years when we do convene for court to ask uh, my colleagues, uh, maybe primarily that I don't know sometimes very well to go to dinner or to go have a glass of wine um, in, in the evening and, uh, and really try to get to know them as well as I can while we have the opportunities for face-to-face -face contact. Obviously in the last year and a half, that's been uh, out of the cards uh, for us, but to try to take advantage of the opportunities that I do have to get to know one another. Right. Well, I want to, I really want to get to your book uh, that uh, you wrote and uh, I thought was fabulous. It's called Legal Writing, A Judge's Perspective on the Science and Rhetoric of the Written Word. And, you know, as an attorney, um, I understand that words matter and how you present them is important. And this was just, I think, just a great book in uh, giving a summary of uh, legal writing tips uh, that I think would apply to any kind of writing, but you, what really sets it apart is that you use all examples from a legal perspective. So in other words, you're using uh, examples from decisions uh, and uh, briefing that uh, are all related to the law. So it's, I think, a good book for uh, anybody interested in writing, um, but especially uh, for for lawyers, let me ask you: What was what prompted you to uh, to write this book? To get better at what I do um, as a judge. For you to get better. For me to get better. Right. Um, it really was uh, when I became a judge. I, I always thought, and I'll back up a little bit, David. When I was in private practice, I always thought that the written briefs were extremely important to my clients, to me professionally. When I became a judge, the significance of my words mattered even more so because all of the litigants considered uh, naturally their own cases to be the most important or at least as, as important as any other case. And so my, my words mattered to the parties uh, very much so. How I uh, refer to them, uh, uh, it, the, the, uh, the, the, the civility of the tone the respectfulness of, of the words, those things mattered a great deal and continue to do so as, as uh, uh, from the district court level. When I became a circuit judge, I quickly realized that my words mattered, uh, not more so, but to a broader audience. I'm, I'm, I continue to write primarily for the parties. And so I think that the significance of the words, the tone, uh, the civility of my uh, of my language continues to matter a great deal, but also I'm I'm writing uh, with the recognition that my words will be read and be applied by lawyers, by parties in completely different uh, per, uh, contexts, and so my words uh, all of a sudden took on a broader significance, and so when I became a judge and, and the longer I became a judge, I decided to study the writing, the le legal writing literature, which is wonderful out there of people that I considered and still consider to be uh, better writers than I am. And so I have tried to uh, read as 
aggressively as I can the legal writing literature. But I really thought, David, that if I forced myself to try to add to the legal writing literature that is out there, that it would force me to take a unique perspective, that it would, uh, that it would enhance the discipline that I took to that uh, in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And I quickly came upon um, two uh, perspectives that I thought really hadn't been adequately mined uh, by the vast legal writing literature that's out there. And the first is rhetoric and oratory. I, I thought about the words of Martin Luther King Jr. or JFK or Winston Churchill, uh, speakers who we all, regardless of our ideologies, uh, think of as incredible speakers. And part of that was the content that they brought to their speeches, but part of it was the way that they packaged their messages. We all understand so quickly and instantly the words of Winston Churchill or, or Martin Luther King Jr. And so I decided to study uh, speech, uh, speech making, uh, oratory, a field that I have no expertise in, but I decided to read a lot of speeches um, and to see if there are lessons that we can apply to our day-to-day -day legal writing when you're writing about subrogation rights, uh, that maybe we can apply some of these grander uh, uh, examples from oratory to our own day-to-day uh, -day legal writing. And then I uh, somehow uh, inadvertently came across this field that I had never heard of called psycholinguistics. We all, you, I, we all as advocates, as judges, write for our audiences. Who is going to read our words? If we're writing for, a, say, uh, the Second Court of, uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals, um, how will those judges react to our words? And a lot of it is intuition. A lot of it comes from experience. Um, but a lot of it comes from speculation about how our readers will react to our language. And I learned that there is this whole discipline that has lasted for over half of a century of psychologists uh, who study cognition. They study how the brain processes language. And I thought um, how, how much we can all learn uh, and, and try to apply to our day-to-day -day legal writing from these cognitive psychologists who are actually conducting empirical studies about how people react to different types of headings, topic sentences, um, punctuation, fonts. And, uh, and so I thought the more that I study oratory, the more that I study cogn cognitive uh, uh, psychology, um, the better legal writer that I will be, the better I will be able to communicate my words to the parties and hopefully to future litigants. And, uh, and, and I decided that if I can force myself uh, to study as, uh, with, with as great a discipline as I can, that it, would, that it would allow me perhaps not only to help myself, but perhaps to, to share what I've learned with others. You know, it, it, it was very interesting. One of the things that uh, really struck me about the book is, of course, you think about writing as being creative, uh in in some ways could be artistic uh but you broke it down as being scientific in many ways 
And you talked about uh, psycholinguistics and which is, uh, you know, how the brain processes language and really the science uh, of writing. And that was very interesting. It's not some, it's not a topic that I had really uh, thought about before. And you give some, you know, real examples, as you said, uh, empirically about how you can structure a sentence and a paragraph and the words you use. Tell us a little bit about your understanding of uh, psycholinguistics and how that informs writing. We all try to persuade as advocates, um, as judges, um, as even transactional lawyers who are writing you know, for their clients, we all try to, uh, to try to persuade our readers in one fashion or another. But we're unable to persuade until our readers understand what we have to say. And psycholinguistics, I think, allows us to think in a, in a rather scientific way um, about how we can put together clauses, sentences, a punctuation that will enhance the clarity of what we're communicating. Now, the clarity will not necessarily uh, translate automatically into writing persuasively, but we have overcome one huge impediment to persuasion, and that is having our reader not sure of what we're saying, Stend spending our, uh, our, our mental effort to try to understand, I'll use a, a mundane example, what the antecedent for a pronoun is, or, um, or, or, or what multiple how multiple clauses interrelate with one another. And with psycholinguistics, it allows us, I think, to draw on this whole body of literature where psychologists for decades have been studying empirically these very issues. How does a, a heading that says background, how much does that enhance the clarity? How much does that en enhance the reader's ability to be able to process what follows? as opposed to a more meaningful uh, declarative sentence used as a heading. Now, I might intuit that maybe the latter is more helpful uh, to the reader, but these psychologists have actually done gone far beyond intuition. They have studied these areas. And so I think that this that psycholinguistics has really enhanced the, 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 the literature that we can draw on in order to make our writing clearer. And I think that that's so important to persuasion, however, uh, whatever format our writing takes place. What I, what I thought was uh, very interesting uh, and in fact helpful in your book was that you talk about these theories uh, and then you go uh, to an example uh, sometimes an example that we might be familiar with from a case or from a writing. Uh, so, for example, you talk about uh, in how to communicate better uh, the idea of chunking information that the brain understands chunks of information of 20 to 25 words. That's generally what a sentence might be. But then you give an example of uh, a Martin Luther King's sentence in his letter from Birmingham jail that's 305 words, um, and you talk about how it's almost inconceivable that you could write a sentence with 305 words, but the way Martin Luther King does it is 
it, it works and you talk about um, how it works and you know how it might work and and I thought the examples that you gave really you know illuminated the issues that you were talking about. Well, I think that there is so much to learn uh, from uh, orators like Martin Luther King Jr. and I. I particularly was enamored with the example from that long sentence, 305 words and a letter from Birmingham jail, because it's so much longer than any sentence that I've ever written could write. And yet, if anyone reads that sentence, I think anyone um, would have such ease in understanding it. It's so powerful, but part of its power is the content of the message. But I think a large part of it, irrespective of the power, comes from the clarity of the way he puts together these 12 chunks of information. You know, we we oftentimes um, were told, I was told many times as a as uh, in law school and afterwards, you know, keep your sentences to 20, 25 words. Well, you can write a 25 uh, word sentence. It is far more difficult to understand than that one sentence from a letter from uh, Birmingham jail, because the way that our that psych, psych, uh, psycholinguists have taught us is that we don't process information based on sentences. We process information based on these familiar units of information chunks, and we store them in our working memories. Well, if you have a, say a long subject clause and there's a, and before you get to the verb and you are processing that long subject clause and, uh, and you're gonna keep that only, only momentarily according to psychologists in our short-term memories and our working memories before you get to the verb, you can have a 25 word sentence, a very short sentence that is so far more difficult. And I think that the reason is, is that the chunks of information are far more significant to the, to the way that all of us as readers naturally, effortlessly try to put together the information in our sentences. And so I do think that some of these examples from oratory are rather obvious, but underutilized illustrations of the, of, of the types of things that we really can naturally apply, even if we're right, not writing about exotic topics, um, we're writing about insurance coverage or a, a negligence case, that these still are principles that can allow us to write more clearly. One of the things you say, you know, oftentimes when we're writing, a, an attorney's writing a brief or something, we're told, you know, tell a story to catch the reader's interest. You say right out front that legal writers need not hook a reader's interest because legal writing is right out of obligation. The judge has to read it. Um, um, and that you have something of a captive audience. Um, that's a little bit contrary, I think, to what the general thinking would be that you've got to tell a story to try to get the reader, in this case, a judge uh, on your side. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that, whether you need to tell a story or not. Well, when you're, when you're telling a story to a jury, and I'm no expert on trial practice, by the way, but when you're telling a story to a jury, um, 
you 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 want to tell a story that is interesting that is going to want to make the jury find in your favor but even from trial practice where storytelling is so extraordinarily important you still have to have a legal hook maybe from the jury instructions uh, to give you the jury an ability a, a, an outlet in order to find for your client now when you're telling a story uh, to me as an appellate judge, or when I was a magistrate judge, what is my, what is my uh, perspective? I think it's the same perspective that every judge has, regardless of whether you're a bankruptcy judge or a justice on the Supreme Court, is to try to decide what is the legally correct outcome. You may tell a story that is very interesting to me, but I don't understand how I can get from A to Z in order to find that the district court should reverse the outcome as you may be advocating to me. Now that doesn't mean that you have to write in the most mundane possible way. And I'll give you an illustration from Chief Justice Roberts opening uh, two sentences in a case called Conkright versus Frommert, where he was writing on a very complicated ERISA uh, issue. And I may be misquoting it because I don't have it in front of me, but I, I, I think I remember that the first sentence was three words, people make mistakes, and then a sentence, short sentence fragment, even administrators of ERISA plans. Now, when I read those two very short sentences, I am hooked. Now, I may be reading Conkright versus Frommer, you know, not because I would prefer to read an ERISA opinion over a wonderful article in the New Yorker, I'm, I'm reading it because I have to, but it is still interesting. Now, what makes that those opening two sentences extraordinary is how he fills in the rest, rest of the paragraph, because then he, 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 he weaves that into a broad legal context where he explains of one, he gets a, a site to Firestone uh, Rubber Entire Company versus Brooch that has the overarching legal principle that is gonna undergird all of his analysis. And then he adds in the next sentence that the plan administrator made an honest, a single honest mistake in interpreting the plan. And so then he explains that the issue is whether a single honest mistake in interpreting the plan would strip that plan administrator of, de of, uh, of deference for subsequent, uh, for other, uh, uh, other mistakes in interpreting uh, the plan. And then it comes full circle and he answers it by saying, of course not. And when you think about those first nine or 10 words, for example, it you can't help but think, of course, if administrators of ERISA plans are just fallible human beings like you and I, who in the world would strip those as a penalty, these plan administrators of deference for subsequent related interpretations of the plan? Well, it's, it's interesting, it is provocative, but more important than that, he's Chief Justice Roberts, and I don't know Chief Justice Roberts. I don't have, I don't have any idea why he wrote those two opening sentences, but I just think that they're marvelous because they're they're interesting, but more importantly, they're integral to the reason that he is going to tell me in the opening paragraph of why he is going to answer this very significant legal issue in the way that he does. 
And so I think you can write it in an interesting way, but our jobs as judges, your jobs as advocates is not to entertain. It's not to show that we're clever as judges or you're clever as an attorney or to use puns. Your job is to persuade me. My job is to explain to the parties why I have reached that, that, that decision. And so writing in an interesting way is good, but it's not an end in and of itself. Yes, and I guess, I guess my thought was perhaps uh, an attorney as an advocate uh, might have a different uh, thought on how they're presenting facts than, uh, than a judge that's writing because an attorney is gonna be trying to create some empathy and may in fact have to, in order to do that, include things that are maybe not directly relevant to how a judge decides, but also important to how the reader feels uh, about their client. And so, so, you know, you talk about, you know, when you're doing a factual summary, only put in facts that uh, the reader is going to need to know to understand the analysis. And I'm, I guess my feeling is as an attorney, sometimes you need to add a little more just to create this kind of empathy for your side. And I think that's, I think that is a very good point, David, and I really don't disagree with that. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a human being, you know, I, I, I want to achieve the, uh, to write what is the legally correct outcome. But, uh, you know, if I'm um, on a, I'll just use the most politically charged type of case that we can have because it's the most personally charged uh, area that we have, and those are death penalty cases. Now, if you are writing as a prosecutor, um, I, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, don't talk about what horrendous crimes were committed uh, in order to affect me maybe wanting to find in your favor as a prosecutor or if you're a defense counsel talking about the extraordinarily difficult um, experiences in the defendant's childhood or organic brain injuries, even if that's not directly related to the precise legal issue, perhaps it's an introduction of particular evidence. So I, I think your point is very well taken. And, uh, and, and, and I think that as an advocate, um, maybe that's a little bit more important um, than it is, I think, from a judge, because as a judge, um, we, and I'll just speak for myself, we all have different views about what our job entails and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. But my job, I feel, is to explain to the parties logically how I get from A to Z, why, not to persuade a losing party that, that they deserve to lose, but to explain my thinking. And, um, and sometimes, uh, you know, I think in retrospect that your point can also be, uh, uh, have value maybe for judges to acknowledge, you know, the, 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 the difficulty, the emotional difficulty that a party is experiencing and, uh, you know, we are human beings, and I think your point's very well taken, David. 
You provide in the book um, um, many areas where uh, te techniques can be used to uh, help in uh, understanding uh, and to uh, further clarify uh, the points that are being made. You talk about uh, the use of metaphors and similes. And uh, again, what I really enjoyed and appreciated was the uh, examples that you use. You, you talk about Justice Holmes. In one of his uh, speeches um, or writings, he talks about nothing but a rag bag full of general principles, a throng of glittering generalities, like a swarm of little bodiless cherubs fluttering at the top of one of Correggio's pictures and certainly paints a picture. Uh, I don't know how I could work that into a, into a brief, <laughs> right? But... <laughs> Well, certainly, you know, some of the examples are are really just so extraordinary and unique, you know, in their own settings. Um, but in, in the in the examples, um, I hope are taken with the, with the intent that I had, but which is not necessarily to say, um, you know, you know, take you know a, a great metaphor from Chief Justice Roberts or the great Justice Holmes and try to fit that in a subrogation uh, brief, but really to make us, and certainly not to encourage overuse of it, because I think that uh, overuse of metaphors, of, of, of cleverness are really counterproductive. Um, but really to just think about on, on those rare occasions um, where we are really trying to make a major point we are really trying to 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 have the judge when he or she puts down the brief to remember he or she never is going to remember at least i'm not going to remember every sentence uh, or even every substantive point certainly not every site but there are going to be a few points that you're going to really want me to remember when i put down the brief just as when you try a case there's going to be two or three points that you're going to want the jury uh, to have in the forefront of their minds when they start deliberating in a jury room and just really to sensitize us to the opportunity that we have to use some of these devices. You know, maybe it's a metaphor, maybe it's an analogy, um, you know, maybe it's, um, it's just a, uh, uh, you know, a particularly uh, crisp way of completing a sentence, thinking about how uh, readers process the ends of sentences as opposed to the middle parts of sentences and really just try to try to uh, sensitize us to these different devices that we can use to emphasize not every point, but those just one or two points that are particularly significant to us. Yeah, and you, you talk about so many things here in writing that sometimes um, you, you know, perhaps just come naturally, but we go into, you go into, for example, sentence structure, which uh, I thought was, uh, you know, very helpful. And you say the most emphatic part of any sentence is the ending. And tell us a little bit about that, how a, a sentence should be set up to be uh, persuasive. 
One of the things that uh, there's there are several parts, I think, in writing a sentence. The first is that when you begin a sentence, um, you know, typically what uh, cognitive psychologists tell us is that we process language based on what we already know. And so how does that, you know, how does that translate into legal writing? If I if you're a party, for example, David, how do I know what you know? Well, one of the things that you know is what I've already told you as a, as a writer. You've already read it. And so one of the things that cognitive psychologists tell us is that you, uh, when you process a sentence, you, you, you naturally, effortlessly will begin a sentence by trying to integrate that with what you have already, with, with what you already have been told by the writer. Um, and, uh, you know, for example, if you look at FDR's first inaugural address, um, what he does in several important parts of that of that great speech is he starts each succeeding sentence after a topic sentence with a pronoun that the antecedent is uh, is the new content that he had already delivered, usually in the immediately preceding sentence. And so that's, you know, there are several ways to do that effectively, but that's part of what makes uh, uh, creates a clear uh, uh, track for the reader to process what you're saying is how you start a sentence. And then with you, the end of a sentence, um, what readers typically will do, according to cognitive psychologists, is when you get to a period or a terminal punctuation, a semicolon, we naturally will, again, without any intent, we pause. Um, and not just a literally with a comma or a semicolon, but there's a what they call a wrap-up effect. We try to make sure that we understand what we have just read before we move on to the next sentence. And part of what the corollary of a wrap-up effect, you know, fancy way of saying what we can just think of as common sense is that we're going to the reader's going to slow down when they get to the uh, a semicolon. They're going to slow down when they get to a period, and so when they are slowing down, uh, that's the most powerful part of your message. That's where you want to deliver the new content, typically, not at the start of a sentence. And when you when you invert that, now it may have uh, a power in a uh, in itself by inverting the typical uh, 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 track of a sentence of, of starting with new information. But typically what you do when you do that is you jar the reader. In occasion, you may want to jar the reader. That's, um, that, that's part of what made uh, Cardozo such an extraordinary uh, master of language. It was his mastery of inverted sentences. And it really forced readers, I think, to think about the start of sentences and you become rather accustomed if you read enough inverted sentences um, that you take that, you know, more as the given than, than the, the exception to the rule. But if you think about typically um, that we want to understand how the new information connects to what we have already said, the typical pattern of starting with old or familiar information and closing with the, the powerful message that the thing, in other words, that we really want the reader to remember, 
they're going to remember that more often than not, if you deliver the most significant parts of your sentence, which you want the reader to remember that's in the closing, a chunk of information that right before the semicolon, right before the period. Another way that uh, you talk about helping a reader remember things is by the use of what you refer to as vivid verbs. Uh, and I really, uh, I really enjoyed this uh, section. Uh, you go through about maybe 80 examples of, of various verbs that you could use to, to really uh, attract a reader's attention. Uh, and by vivid verbs, you're talking about words like you know, bamboozle um, and uh, bludgeon. Uh, for example. And they're all words that uh, obviously have a uh, very straightforward meaning, but also I think paint a picture that's much more dramatic than, you know, for example, for, for bamboozle, much more dramatic than a, than a, a I think a, just a standard explanation of, of, of what happened. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on uh, vivid verbs and and what some of your favorites might be well the uh you know one of the things about using vivid verbs that i do want to make clear is i'm not suggesting that you use verbs like bamboozle or thwack and these what we would think of as vivid verbs in order to show how clever we are uh, that's the opposite of, of of what i hope readers get from my book um i hope I hope that it's not interpreted that way. But what you do want to do, not through overuse, but is to have the reader remember certain points. You know, if you are representing a victim of someone who has allegedly been struck by a police officer, and the claim is a 1983 claim for excessive force, um, you know, you can say that the officer um, hit uh, your client, or you can say that he whacked your client, or that, uh, you know, there are a number of different verbs, and you don't want to overstate it, uh, but what you do want to judge is, getting back to what you had said earlier, you want to paint a picture that the judge, uh, that, that will cause the judge to be sympathetic to your client, and part of that is, for me, to remember some of the key points. And if the most important part of your strategy is for me as a judge to appreciate that your client was not just, you know, uh, slapped with an open hand, but was really uh, hit hard, maybe you do want to use the word bludgeoned. Um, I don't think, you know, if he, if he or she, you know, that, that creates a connotation that may involve exaggeration. And so you want to be careful about not overstating it. But if you want me to remember it, it's probably more memorable than to just say that, that the officer uh, struck your client. Yeah, another uh, section you have is on, in your tips is one is to uh, avoiding legalese and Latin. That's a, a whole section on avoiding legalese in Latin. Now, I understand avoiding legalese, um, where you say, you know, the use of words like aforementioned or hereafter. Um, but why would why would we want to avoid use of Latin terms that have a a, a meaning in 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 the law? 
Well, you, you know, for example, uh, you, you don't always want to do that. You know, for example, if you have a product liability or negligence case, case and rest ipsa loquitur is a, you know, a primary issue in the case, I'm not saying avoid rest ipsa loquitur. It'll be far more distracting and awkward and unclear if you avoid some of these uh, Latin terms uh, that really have these well uh, well understood meetings. That's the best part about being a lawyer is <laughs> the, uh, or you know another example is de novo review. Now if you're arguing in New York uh, to the uh, New York Court of Appeals or to the Second Circuit, and uh, you're arguing it as a, as a, as an appellant that the uh, appellate court should should use their independent judgment. It's going to be much clearer, I think, to say de novo review than to say use your independent judgment. So I I don't want want that to be taken as an unqualified ban on using Latin phrases. But one of the things that uh, but but you know, I'm, I'm not a Latin expert and maybe I've just write, wrote that selfishly. You know, if you, if you, if you write inter alia and, uh, you know, and if I have to look it up, uh, that's really counterproductive as opposed to saying, you know, among other things or veiled on. And, and, you know, th I, I can't say that, you know, that, uh, that, that this is right, you know, so to speak. But what I am saying is, if you, as an advocate, want me to understand, um, and uh, you know, and, and and if you use Latin phrases, maybe that are superfluous. Maybe that you can use the plain English um, counterpart. You know, I I think that that's to your advantage, and so not not to you know eschew using these Latin phrases when they are central, well-recognized, but, but in excess, I think it can diminish the clarity of your writing. You also talk about usage uh, of words and you go through, I'm gonna say about 50 misused words, uh, which I also found quite honestly, uh, extremely helpful. Uh, to have these all out in alphabetical order. Uh, sometimes, you know, even the best of us struggle with which one we're supposed to use. Um, and some of them I thought were really, just really, it's just really nice to have them all in one place. Um, and I, there was one, home or hone. So, what, so when, and you say when nearing a location, you home in on it, not hone in, to hone something is to sharpen it. And I've heard many times the use of hone, to hone in on something, um, and uh, that's apparently not appropriate. It would be home in, I guess, to bring home, right? Right. To, yeah. to, to locate. Uh, would be to, or bring to a location would be home. And to sharpen, like to sharpen your skills, for example, would be to hone. Right, and, 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 and that's my belief, uh, David. And, and the reason, and I, I can't say that this is gonna, you know, necessarily make the difference in, in whether your appeal is, is uh, you know, it prevails or not. 
but these are this is just one of uh, I, I think a lot of different things that can distract me as a reader and if right. you say you're uh, you're honing in on the uh, you know on the suspect um, I'm going to be slightly distracted maybe for a millisecond or two and you know it's the same with an ill-defined antecedent for a pronoun these are just little bitty things that if you remove the distractions for the reader I think that that enhances the clarity you know it's not a it's not a matter of necessarily of of you know that judges are the grammatical police or or that lawyers are the grammatical police for judges but i just think that that if we all myself included really try to take an effort not when we're writing the initial draft but when we're editing ourselves or editing a colleague um, if we think about these these matters of usage and really try to use the correct word um, in some of these areas where it's more common to use the the uh, the, the uh, improper uh, usage of the word that uh, that we're removing distractions and and I think um, added together I think that those things can en can enhance the clarity of our writing. Absolutely. But let me ask you, what, what's the writing process that you use, that you use when you're uh, writing and drafting a decision? One of the things, first thing that I do is I will draft um, an outline. And I try to give a lot of thought to that. And what I try to think about, David, is what is the, the, the logical progression of the argument? You know, for example, you mentioned about concision in the statement of facts. What are those facts that the reader absolutely will need to know in order to understand what what will follow in my introduction, which I think is by far the most important part of any legal brief or judicial opinion. What does the reader absolutely need to know in order to um, provide the utility of that introduction? And when I think the utility is to provide a roadmap of what comes um, for me as a reader to know what the principal issue is, how I'm gonna uh, answer that issue and why. And to do that in maybe 75 or 100 words. And so that creates a need for true economy of language. Anything that is extraneous, I think can easily cause, uh, cause us to overwhelm the reader. So in any event, I try to go all through all that. And then I go through dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of revisions. Um, my, my secretaries, I've, I've really been fortunate. I'm 62 and so I've had a, a few secretaries and I've all been blessed to have secretaries that have the patience of Joe to go through. I might write a one page letter and go through eight drafts and you know, and, and they, if, if they bind, they, 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 they restrain themselves which is kind of remarkable. I don't know if I would have as great a patience as my secretaries have. But then what I do is I will give that uh, document. Uh, I'm really blessed uh, to have a number of just super young people that I work with as my law clerk. So I will give that to a law clerk and they will, uh, they will edit, I call it a drafter's review. They will edit um, what I have to say and then they do it in track changes. This may be, 
more in the weeds than you would. No, have. this is exactly what I'm asking. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I want to know. And so then, uh, what what they do, and I really value that, uh, is then I will decide what I want to change or what I what don't want to change. I might talk to them, you know. Um, and one of the things that I tell all my law clerks is, if something's unclear, you really need to flag it. You need to tell me because uh, I hire these wonderful young people that are just so smart. And I tell them all, the one thing I am always going to change is if you tell me something I wrote is confusing, I guarantee you, as smart as these young people are that are my law clerks, if any of them are confused, everybody will be confused. And so then I'll decide that whether to accept or reject those changes. And then I give it to a second law clerk um, and, and ideally a law clerk who has no familiarity with that case. And I ask him or her to do what I call a substantive edit, to start with the district court's opinion, to read closely the appellate briefs and to go through everything, um, whether it's a site. If I say the defendant has two siblings and the defendant has three siblings and it has nothing to do with the opinion, then I want them to, to flag that, to correct that. Because if I show um, a, a sloppiness on the facts that don't matter, a party naturally is going to suspect that I'm not showing a, enough care for the facts in the law that do matter. And so everything matters. Uh, and so it's very important for a judge not to get anything wrong. We're fallible. We're going to make mistakes. But we do have the, 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 the privilege of working with these young people that will help try to flag those and correct those for us. And so in any event, a second law clerk will do a substantive edit and I'll accept or reject those changes. I give it to a third law clerk to do a style edit. And my my sort of uh, marching orders to that is, um, it, 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 maybe it's poorly organized. Maybe the headings are, um, are too cryptic or maybe too detailed. Uh, maybe the introduction didn't adequately arm you as a reader, the sub editor, to, to, to know what you're going to be looking for in the rest of the document. Um, whatever, maybe the subject is too, too far from the verb. Maybe the antecedent for a pronoun is ill-defined. All these things to go meticulously through everything and to try to uh, flag what's what what could be done better, uh, what be, could be expressed clearer, and to the extent that they can, to try to give me recommendations on how to fix those things. And then I accept or reject those changes. And then I do all of that. And every step of the way, I'm, I'm continuing to edit and edit and edit and edit. And then I give it to the initial drafter and say, and I call that a final drafter's review. And I say, and basically it's speak now forever, hold your peace, because I'm about to circulate it to my panel. And, uh, and, and so then they will give me changes. And what I aggressively want is for law clerks not to worry about hurting my feelings. It will hurt my feelings if they are too worried about hurting my feelings, because then my opinions aren't going to be as, as correct, as clear as they could be. And so I, they always contribute substantially at every one of these stages. And then I'll ask either a, a law clerk or an extern to read it just for typographical errors. But David, 
then when I circulate it to my colleagues on the panel, they may come back and often do come back even after all of these things and then and they will catch mistakes and then they will say, you know, I'm really confused about this one section. And I think that's a huge favor. I, I consider that just as valuable or, or sometimes more valuable than all of the other comments that I've gotten. And so I try to take advantage of all of these people that are trying to find more correct, clearer ways of articulating an opinion, because that's ultimately my goal. It's not about me. It's not about my colleagues. It's about trying to decide in a legally correct way in as clear a fashion as I can of why I reached a decision that I had have done. And if, if, uh, if, you know, I, I, I just assume people, you know, do it in a way that maybe isn't cruel, you know, is a, you know, are you sure you graduated law school? You know, I mean, there, you know, all of these people are very diplomatic, but, but I don't want them to be too diplomatic because I, I don't want any of them or my colleagues to restrain themselves because I consider picking up my, my opinion as a huge favor to me. And, you know, and I think that that's really important. At what point in that process do we add the, the part about uh, Caravaggio's cherubs? <laughs> where, where does that ornamental stuff come in? <laughs> Well, it doesn't come in enough for me. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not a I'm not a creative soul, and so I I can't say that I have these great aphorisms that I use these wonderful examples, you know, from Holmes or Chief Justice Roberts or Justice Kagan. So, uh, but hopefully, if I take advantage of of all of the contributions of my law clerks. Um, you know, and my colleagues, hopefully one of them uh, will be more clever than me and be able to come up with these great, great vivid metaphors. Well, Judge Robert Backrack, I want to thank you for being with us on Miranda Warnings. I want to thank you for uh, your service to our justice system. And I want to thank you for this book, Legal Writing, A Judge's Perspective on the Science and Rhetoric of the Written Word published by the American Bar Association, if anyone wants to get a copy. Um, this is a book that I think lawyers will keep on their shelf and refer to, I know that I will, uh, for years to come. So thank you for that. We have a feature on Miranda Warnings called Music Book or Movie. I mean, we talked, uh, you know, for uh, the, the whole podcast about your book, but is there something else uh, that's important to you that might inform our listeners? You know, one of the things, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a movie buff. I'm, I'm certainly not a movie expert, but I love watching movies. And uh, my wife and I were watching this uh, movie the other night on Netflix. And, uh, and one of the things that really struck me that we see so often in movies is that there is some comment that is made and without getting into the movie that I was talking about, it was just a little comment that was made and it came back at the climax of the movie and it leads to this great revelation. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it reminded me a little bit of the, uh, you know, the famous line, I think from Chekhov, but I'm gonna butcher it. 
you know, if there's a gun in Act, Act One, it has to, it must go off by Act Two. And, you know, one of the things that I think we see all of the time in movies is this editing stage. It's the, it's, there's, there's not a stray piece of dialogue. And if, if any of us think about the great movies or great books that we've read that we all love, it's the, the, it's the editing of those books, the editing of those movies. And so when we think about our own statements of facts, you know, I, I think sometimes about, you know, that great quote, quote from Chekhov or this example from this movie, that these little lines aren't just things that ad were added to the, you know, say to the, 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 the time, the, uh, you know, of the movie or to the page length of a book. They, everything in a great book is significant. Everything in a great movie is significant. And so I really just think that if we can utilize those things in our writing, I think we'd all do a lot better, better job. Well, I'm going to press you on that a little bit. Give me an example of a movie that you think uh, was uh, particularly well edited, one that is tight. The, the, the one in, uh, that, that I saw years ago that, um, that, I, that is one of my favorite movies is The Manchurian Candidate. Yeah, okay. And uh, I just thought, you know, and again, I'm not, I, I don't purport to be a movie expert. Uh, my family will be the first to, to call me out on that because I'm the furthest, you know, from that. But, uh, you know, I think- The old one, 1960 with Frank Sinatra? Uh, right, right. I think, if right. He, uh, you know, it's been a long time since so I've looked at that, David, but my memory of that movie is that it's just such a remarkable movie. Part of it is great acting, you know, but, but part of it, I think, is just the editing of it. Um, is that everything in that movie, um, if you watch it enough or have a good enough memory, it really adds um, to something else in that movie. There's nothing extraneous. Right. There's a lot of clues there that might seem innocuous at the beginning, uh, but uh, lead to obviously the dramatic conclusion in the Manchurian Canada, a great movie. Well, uh, Judge Bacharach, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for being with us on Miranda Warnings. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, I, I wish you every success. Well, thank you so much, David. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I'm so honored to be a part of it, and uh, just really enjoyed myself. Uh, I get nervous on, on, on these podcasts, but, I've, but you were a wonderful host, and I really enjoyed myself. Thank you, Judge. Thank you for being with us on Miranda Warnings. Thank you. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.